Good evening to all of you. It's great to see you all back here. Um, again, this is Tales of the Talmud with me, Rabbi Nick Renner. Um, last time, we looked at a figure named Elazar ben Arach, a mystical figure who sort of pushed some of the boundaries of what is possible in terms of the rabbinic experience. Um, we have also looked at, in our learning of Talmudic stories, a figure named Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkanos. He, if you remember from our story about the oven of Achnai, this snake-like oven, um, there was this whole conflict between him and the other sages, and he is ultimately excommunicated. Um, we looked at Rabbi Akiva at one point, and we looked at uh, his Torah learning and the ways in which he was a learned and brilliant sage, and the way in which he ultimately took part in the Bar Kokhva revolt and was martyred as a consequence to it. Um, in the course of study of all of these figures, one element that has emerged time and again is this question of boundaries, this question of lines, delineation. What is in and out? What is within and outside of external to the rabbinic project? A brief bit of background about what is the rabbinic project? What is the Talmud? So the Talmud is the longest written work in the ancient world. It's the longest written work by about four times. The next closest thing is a series of, uh, I believe, Roman legal codes. It is so long, it is uh, 63 tractates or volumes uh, make up the Talmud. And it is so long because it preserves all of the dissenting opinions, all the disagreements, all of the arguments, all of these pieces. In terms of genre, the Talmud is two basic pieces. One, it is halakha, this word for Jewish law. It's the legal material. It's prescriptive in nature. The second thing that it is, is agadata or agadah, similar to the haggadah. It's a word that means legends, stories, fables, these mystical pieces uh, of, that the rabbis are writing about. Um, and this is what we're focusing on in this course of study. Uh, this is the last session in this particular uh, calendar year in this course of study. But this seems to have been a really great topic and something that folks have enjoyed, and we've had a solid turnout and solid learning, so we're going to continue with some stories um, when this course picks back up again after the high holidays. So it is these two things, the Talmud, Halakha and Agadah, and we're learning Agadah, we're learning the stories in here. These are stories that tell us about the rabbinic perspective, the rabbinic worldview. Who are the rabbis? So the rabbis are what we get historically, the people who emerge as Jewish leadership and they begin to define Judaism following the destruction of the second temple. So in and around the turn of the millennia, um, around the year zero or so, we get the Romans conquering uh, the Holy Land, the land of Israel, um, and destroying the various Jewish groups and such. And in the wake of the destruction of the temple, in the wake of this destruction of what was Israelite centrality and uh, Israelite governance, Israelite peoplehood, the rabbis were the folks who sought to figure out how to put it all back together again. After all of this cataclysm, all of this destruction, their project was how do we remake our relationship with God? No small undertaking. Um, given that the capital was destroyed, that the sacrificial system was destroyed, all they have to figure out is how do we exist as a people and how do we exist in relationship to God? Like I said, pretty significant questions they're undertaking. So the Talmud itself is two 
two written works. It's the Mishnah and the Gemara. The Mishnah was redacted in the year 220. The Gemara, it's not entirely clear when it was redacted, but we believe it was redacted somewhere around the year 6700 or so. Um, what's that? Oh. So that's sort of one of the mysteries as well, is when the Talmud was finally closed. Uh, we're going to continue. As I mentioned, we've learned all of these different uh, stories about from these different rabbis. And one thing that's come up over and over again are what are the boundaries of the rabbinic project? What are the lines of the rabbinic discourse? Who is in and who is out? What is acceptable and what is not acceptable? So one thing that's come up a couple of times in looking at folks who seem to push these boundaries, whether it is the mystic, uh, Elazar ben Arach, whether it is the revolutionary uh, and also the Torah scholar, Rabbi Akiva, and his uh, messianism he engages with, or whether it is uh, Eliezer ben Herkonos, one of the great sages who winds up excommunicated. Uh, one thing that constantly comes up and that somebody has mentioned in all of these sessions is a figure named Elisha ben Avuya. He is also known as the Acher, uh, which literally means the other. He, in the rabbinic imagination, is the heretic par excellence. He is the famed uh, apostate. He is the one, the sort of model, the prototype for the rabbi who leaves the fold, who betrays the people, who steps somehow beyond the boundaries. Um, again, we have the wrongdoings of Rabbi Eleazar, Eliezer ben Herkonos, and he winds up getting excommunicated for this conflict he has with the rabbis, but we still call him Rabbi Eliezer. Um, even though he gets shut out from their political process, the tradition subsequent to him doesn't erase him. It doesn't strip him of that name, Rabbi. It doesn't rename him something else in that way. Uh, we can't say the same thing for Elisha ben Avuya, as he is retitled, remade into Acher, the other. They won't even say his name. He is that kind of Voldemort sort of character in the rabbinic <laughs> imagination. So we're going to look at some stories some pieces of the Elisha ben Avuya narrative. There are too many different stories and too many pieces to actually look at everything that was said about him, so I've tried to pick a selection that uh, illustrates his story arc and who he is as a character. Um, as they say in TV when things get a little gruesome, viewer discretion is advised. Um, there is a piece of this... Uh, that gets a little bit horrific toward the end. And again, I want to uh, reinforce that this is sort of the rabbinic evildoer par excellence. So um, to keep that in mind as things really go off the rails. So now I'm going to distribute these stories of Rabbi Elisha ben Avuya, or Elisha ben Avuya the Acher. So if you want to take one, pass them on. I want us to begin, as is our custom in this group, with some Chevruta learning. Chevruta, uh, this, the Aramaic construct of the word Chaver, a friend in Hebrew. Chevruta learning is the traditional rabbinic Talmudic discourse, and so I'd love for us to learn in this mode as well. So turn to somebody next to you, uh, or three people, get in a small two or three group, and uh, I encourage you to read through it. Um, I lost the line. Hmm. Okay, well... I don't have the line in the page that used to be, so I'm telling you. Now, just read the first paragraph. We'll start with just the first paragraph. Ready? Get set. Go. So why don't we come back together and begin unpacking what's going on here? How about that? I'm going to start reading 
Unless we have any question right from the beginning, I'm going to start reading and I encourage you all to jump in and stop me when you have a question in this paragraph, okay? Does that sound good? All right. Our rabbis taught, four entered the garden. Arba'a shenichnesu lepardes. Um, questions here? I actually do have a question. Yes. With Aher entering this garden with these other figures, would this have been before he has done whatever thing he did that caused him to be cast out of the community and to become a hair, to lose his name. That's the implication. Okay, because he is entering in the presence of this respected Rabbi Kiva. They're doing this, they're going in together in some way, so the implication seems to be that he hasn't yet committed his um, heresy yet. Um, You also had a question about the garden that I want to go ahead and toss out for the whole group um, that I thought was a good question. Garden here, if you look at my footnote, it is pardes, this Hebrew word for it. This word, this is not Gan Eden we're talking about. This is not the Garden of Eden. And I want to say that very intentionally because there are Talmudic stories that do (coughs) encounter the Garden of Eden, where the rabbis are other people. There's a famous story about Alexander of Macedonia, Alexander the Great, actually going to the Garden of Eden and interacting with the gates there. So the Garden of Eden does happen. It is a place that is in the Talmud. So we are not meant to see this as the Garden of Eden. I'll say one other thing about this word, pardes. This is supposed to be this resplendent, beautiful, idyllic place. Um, I heard a, uh, a rabbi I talked to about this suggest, um, imagine the Baha'i Gardens, if you've ever been to Israel and seen those perfectly, beautifully manicured, manicured gardens where everything is in place. Imagine that kind of thing. Some kind of garden that is approaching some kind of aesthetic perfection. Uh, now, this word, though, Pardes is not a Hebrew word originally. This is a very recent word here. And if you were in the ancient Talmudic uh, imagination, you would hear that this is not a Hebrew word for garden. It is not a gan. It is not gan Aden. They're using a recent word, a Persian word for garden. So again, this is a word, this is a construct of garden that comes from the East, in fact. Just want to put that on everyone's radar. This is something you would hear, again, if you were so steeped in this, if you were the guys walking around and talking about this all, you would probably hear that, that, oh, we're talking about some kind of a Persian or Babylonian, some kind of Eastern beautiful garden, but we're not talking about Gan Eden, and we're not talking about the land of Israel. I capitalized it because it, it's, it is some kind of place of mystical significance. It is some kind of mystical experience that happens here. So I wanted to capitalize that. That was my choice in rendering this. Um, any other questions, or can we? Well, uh, does it suggest any time um, in history, maybe at all? Um, like a Babylonian exile or something like that. Or? So historically, these rabbis are folks who would have been in and around the end of the first century CE, the beginning of the second century CE. That, that's when these were, that's when these historical figures were around. Um, so we're thinking of sometime after, if we were trying to play in the game of historicity, which is a dangerous game to play, as I've mentioned before, because of this rabbinic formulation, Ein Mukdam Umeochar B'Torah, There is no such thing as early or late in the Torah. They play fast and loose with our ideas of historicity and temporality. Just a warning. Um, But we're probably looking at the end of the first century, beginning of the second. Uh, 
in terms of that. In terms of East and West, I also want to put out there that there were two Talmuds. You'll oftentimes see the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud, the Yerushalmi and the Bavli, um, because there were these huge academies that were in Babylonia, what is now modern-day Iraq, um, where they were in the midst of writing this work. So these rabbis, and you'll see later on in this, the rabbis actually went back and forth between the land of Israel and these Babylonian academies, sharing and learning and arguing with one another. So it sort of hops back and forth. In terms of the two Talmuds, the Babylonian Talmud is, have, has a greater overlay of later redaction. The Jerusalem Talmud is seen as closer to the original version. Yeah? Are all four of these people rabbis? Excellent question. Rabbi Akiva is a rabbi, of course. Yes. Ben Azai and Ben Zoma don't seem to have that title elsewhere. They're part of this big group of sages that are arguing. They're, they're regular characters. We see them in other places too. They're minor characters, but this isn't the only place we have them. So they're part of the broader dramatis personae of the Talmud. Um, but they don't get labeled as rabbis. Good question. So what you, what Hang on. What you're saying is that the scriptures written in Jerusalem obviously, or in my mind, mm -hmm. have the flavor of Europe and Rome, whereas the scriptures from Babylonia are in the East, and it's like I look at Sephardim and Ashkenazi, mm -hmm. they're a different of day and night. In my mind. Sure. So I want to say two things. First, um, I probably wouldn't call them scripture just because scripture oftentimes refers to the Hebrew Bible. And this set of writings is the first essentially Jewish writing that is not part of the Hebrew Bible and not part of the canon. So this is our first layer of interpretation in that way. Um, so you could call it rabbinic work. You could call it Talmud, Gemara. There are a lot of ways you could refer to it. Um, you could suggest that the Babylonian Talmud is more Eastern in orientation or influence. However, I would I will want us to, I want to caution us about making any kind of generalization about that because it was redacted later. It seems to have more evidence of later rabbis uh, editing it and messing with it and putting their own stamps on it. So on one hand, that makes it easier to read from a contemporary Hebrew standpoint. On the other hand, it probably has a greater stamp of later rabbinic thought on it, so it, some of which might be exactly more European or more Mediterranean in orientation. So you can't necessarily draw an easy geographic distinction in terms of the material itself. Okay. Yeah. A difference yes. In their content. In some places, yes. Oftentimes they're very similar and very close to the same work. There are some places where it'll be a little bit different. Some places might have different characters or might have a slightly different uh, outcome to a story, but usually the differences are subtle. Um, but it depends. It's, it's hard for me to generalize, actually. Yeah? Do they both, I mean, does the Jerusalem Talmud exist? I mean, yes. Yeah. That's... Um, you don't tend to see that on people's shelves as much because it's not used as sort of the authoritative one. But uh, generally, the Babylonian Talmud is seen as the authoritative one for halakha, for more contemporary Talmud study, for even medieval Talmud study. But scholars like to go to the Jerusalem one because they see it as probably being closer to the original voice. So contemporary scholars of this material, as opposed to um, halachic authorities, will, might prefer the Jerusalem Talmud. So I want to keep going. 
uh, past this first sentence because we've got a lot to look at here. Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, Acher, and Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva said to them, When you arrive at the stones of pure marble, don't say water, water. For it is said, He that speaks lies shall not be established before my eyes. That sort of unintentionally rhymes. It does not rhyme in the original Hebrew. Uh, to clarify what that means, Rabbi Akiva is saying, when you see this beautiful polished marble that looks like it could be the surface of water, it looks so glassy, don't call it water. Don't say a lie here. And he quotes Psalm 101, verse 7. Um, you'll find that in, and this is where I'm getting back to the difference between Talmud and Scripture, the way in which the rabbis make arguments and the way in which they state their claims with authority is to hang those claims and those arguments on biblical verses. So you'll see a slew of footnotes I put here with all the different biblical verses that they're using to speak. They're sort of speaking and making their arguments in biblical verse. That's how much Bible they read. So... uh gives you some perspective in their worldview, in their language, in the way in which they even express their ideas, is that they know the Torah, the Bible so well that they express their ideas in its lines and its verses. Questions here? Can I, or uh, shall we move on? Got a lot here. All right, good. So, Ben Azai glanced and died. Of him it is said, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And we're quoting Psalm 116, verse 15 there. Uh was it the Excellent question. Um, there is something mysterious. There is something powerful about this experience of entering into the garden. Um, it's not clear that he that he told a lie, as Rabbi Akiva was warning about. It's not clear that he said or did something, um, as it says about him. He's a saint. God is happy to see this saint die in the eyes of God. Um, there is something. There's an interesting piece here. Let me uh, get through the next piece, and then we'll come back to it. Um, Benzoma glanced and was stricken. Uh, that Hebrew there is nifga. If anybody knows contemporary Hebrew, there's this word for to strike, uh, to reach out in this way. A terrorist attack in contemporary Hebrew is pigua. It's the same root as this word I use for stricken. Some scholars translate this word as uh, he glanced and he went insane. He lost his mind. Um, and there's another piece in this that I didn't bring to this conversation that's looking at Benzoma after the fact, and a group of students with a rabbi go and try and talk to him, and he says these nonsensical things about the beginning of the world and the waters and God flowing over the waters, and the other rabbi says he is somehow outside. He's lost his mind. So I use this word stricken here as a very literal translation, but you would be within well within your rights to say that he's lost his mind. So I want to combine the two of those up. Because they are, there's a certain parallel. Yeah, go ahead. What are the roots of the, of the word that you translate as glance? Does it have, are there other words that we, what is that word? Hate Um What's interesting about that word, this word that, uh, uh, this verb for destroyed the shoots, uh, is katsits. It's a, almost the same word in the Aramaic here. We're in Aramaic right now because oh. we're reading Gemara. So your Hebrew will may not help you here, um, but it's this word for a quick sort of furtive glance, a peek, if you will. Um, so Ben Azai and Ben Zoma, in contrast, this is an interesting piece because Ben Zoma's uh, verse afterward, it says, Of him was said, Have you found honey? Eat only what is sufficient for you so you don't get too full and vomit. What's remarkable about that verse is there's some kind of 
implication of wrongdoing as opposed to Ben Azai, who it says happy God is happy in the death of a real saint. So here we have the two of them. Something bad happens to both of them. One of them dies, though, and one of them lives. Um, I was learning this with my rabbi, Rabbi Steve Sager, my Rav in the cosmic sense of the word. Um, I wanted to learn this with him in preparation for talking about it here. And one thing that popped out to me is um, in this rabbinic era, you get the whole emergence of martyrdom as a phenomena. You get rabbis who are martyred by the Romans. You don't get martyrdom in the same way in a lot of uh, Hebrew Bible. It emerges as a phenomena, and it's seen, the word that we use for it, because we talked about this before, if you remember, Kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of the name. Uh, my, my apologies, we talked about that in Torah study, actually. I'm con- confusing my groups that I'm learning with. Okay. But this idea of Kiddush Hashem, sanctification of the name, um, for martyrdom, it's seen as a sort of purification of its own. So this idea that precious is in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, the one who dies, it seems like, is uplifted in this way. Uh, ben Azai is uplifted in this verse that they use to eulogize him. The eulogy, not quite eulogy, because he's still alive. What happens to Ben Zoma? This verse says there's something wrong here with what he did. Uh, eat your fill of honey, but don't eat too much, otherwise you'll get sick. So it seems like whatever he did in his glance, in his action here, he did too much. He took in too much. He took in more than he should have, and perhaps more than his body or his experience was telling him to take in, past the point of being sick. So he was afflicted in this way. Other questions? Yeah. Well, so they, the thing they're glancing at, which obviously is not actually specifically stated, yeah. but they go into the garden to see this, these stones of pure marble, right. and marble is very reflective. And reflections are very powerful. So could it be that what they are seeing is a reflection of themselves and perhaps some sort of, I don't know, divine reflection that shows like what they really are? So in the case of uh, <coughs> Ben Azai, I mean, he's, he's a saint. And what, I mean, a, a saint is, is more of this heavenly body heavenly uh, concept anyway so for him to simply die there instantly and be taken up to be with god Mm -hmm. and for uh benzoma if he was somehow an innately greedy person whether he showed it on the outside or not if the what he saw of himself in a reflection on the inside drove him completely insane because of whatever this greed was so I have never quite heard it droshed that they are looking at a reflection of themselves refracted through some kind of divine lens. Can I borrow your pencil real quick, somebody? Something to write with? Thank you. I want to write that down. And um, what's your first and last name? Uh, Abraham Cohen. Abraham Cohen. I want to um, teach this Bashem Omro in your, uh, in your name because I haven't right. heard that quite um, phrased that way. And that's the thing is that this is also a rabbinic thing I just did, is that when you hear teaching from somebody that you want to teach, they are very, very clear and very transparent to always teach in the name of the person they learn from. So that's why it's very important to me in this rabbinic discourse to do the rabbinic thing in that nature. Um, Thank you for the use of your pencil. So that's a great reading of it. Perhaps they are looking at themselves. Um, The reading that I've often heard from folks is that they are seeing some kind of truth, some kind of divine revelation, that they are experiencing perhaps a little bit more truth than they can really handle in their lives. We saw, 
We saw Rabbi Elazar ben Arach chasing after these waters and these wines at the end of his story, and going after this water and this wine, somehow he loses himself. Um, somehow going after some kind of an experience, it is entirely possible, we've seen this before, and Talmud can in some way obliterate who you are in an existential way. We have seen Ben Azai killed by glancing at whatever this is, whatever revelation this is, perhaps some vision of himself refracted through this divine reflection. Um, we have seen Benzoma looking and being injured at whatever this is, whatever revelation, whatever experience this is. So there is a profundity and even a danger at being too close to that which is divine, that which is revelatory, and that which is spiritual. Again, the rabbis, they have real ambivalence about these powerful, mystical, spiritual experiences. And I use the word ambivalence intentionally, not as disinterest, but ambivalent. They hold the multiple valences of it, that it is this uplifted, holy, and wonderful, beautiful thing, and it's also very dangerous. Yeah? Well, uh, I'm just um, struck by the fact that they did this right after Rabbi Akiva spoke those words, not to do it like Eve was told not to do something in these Two, two people were told not to do something, and they went ahead and did something mm-hmm. you know, as a consequence. So it's not clear as if they violated what Rabbi Akiva tells of them, or if they've done something else entirely. Because Rabbi Akiva says, don't say water when you see the stones. He's warning them against, in some way, reporting or conveying this experience in a way that is false. He says, that's the thing you cannot do. So whether they glanced and in some way conveyed what is there, this revelation, this experience, in a way that's true or false, is an interesting question. I think that's a great question you raise here. Yeah. Well, what I associate with being a pig. So there's some association here that way. But then on top of it all, you my reading of history says that, that the Romans were glutton. In other yes. words, they ate until they were more than full, and then they would, excuse me, vomit it all up. And then they would start again. And that was a way of life, of eating until you... (laughs) Until you got sick, yeah. Until you get sick, vomit, start over again. You are right to bring that particular understanding to the table. You could very easily read this verse here um, of him, have you found honey? Eat only what is sufficient for you so you don't get sick. They could be deploying that voice as a polemic against the Romans in their way of life. That is a totally not an uncommon thing in the Talmud, that they will very obliquely attack the Roman enterprise, the Roman culture, the Roman uh, yeah, authority in that way through verses, through roundabout ways. They will find ways to come out and use their own language and their own methods to uh, condemn it. So I think you're right to bring that to the table as well. Um, should we continue? I want to finish out the story and then we'll reflect on it for a moment. Acher destroyed the shoots. Rabbi Akiva departed in peace. Yes? Acher did not glance. The other two glance, but he did not glance. He just destroyed. Mm-hmm. It Whatever does... he thought that was the cause of the death of the other one. So I'll, uh, I'll tell you something interesting here that I didn't put in the page that I was thinking about, but I didn't. I'll read you a piece. So there is another work called Tosefta, which is an earlier version of a lot of these rabbinic works. 
Tosefta has a slightly different version of this story. They have a verse for, um, they have all verses for all four of them here. We're going to see a verse for Acher in the next piece that we're going to see, but we don't see the verse from Rabbi Akiva. So I'm going to go ahead and read you this verse that they use in the earlier version of it. Um, the verse from the earlier version, the earlier version of this story says about Rabbi Akiva, and about Rabbi Akiva it said, Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me to his chambers, let us delight and rejoice in your love. This is from the Song of Songs. In some way, this earlier version says about Rabbi Akiva, or seems to be saying that Rabbi Akiva was drawn in by God, that he may not have made the choice to enter into the garden on his own, but that he may have been pulled in. So it may not have even been his choice. He may have been the only one of those three that God invited in, which is interesting. That was, for all of you here and all of you listening at home, this is Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 4 that the Tosefta attaches to Rabbi Akiva. You can look it up later on. Again, I didn't attach that because I didn't know if we were going to go into that, but I'm happy to share it with you here. Um, so that's a piece of what was an earlier version of this that does have verses for all four of them. Um, other questions? Yeah? Well, not, not a question, but my sense of <clears throat> Asher, what it says, is basically he did go in and he just rigged havoc. Yeah, he destroyed uh, the greenery. Almost like... As he always does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something. This is seen by the rabbis as the point at which he commits his heresy. Whatever this was, destroy, cutting the shoots, destroying the shoots, this was his grand heresy. That's the way that they understand it. This was his crossing the bridge into being the apostate, state enemy number one. Whatever happened in that moment. This is the way in which they talk about it um, more commonly. Yeah. So my thought was, what a fair does in destroying the shoots is an extremely traumatic event to, to turn him into a hair. But this event, as traumatic as it is to the entirety of the Hebrew people and to the, the collection of sages and rabbis, it doesn't seem to emotionally affect Akiva. He simply departs in peace. He witnesses this. He's there for this heresy, for this great destruction, and he's not affected by whatever divinity or whatever it was that struck down Benazai and Benzoma, mm-hmm. and he's not affected by the horror of what Aher does. He's able to just, I don't know, synthesize all of what's going on around him and leave in a state of peace. So... You're right to point that out, and I want to take us back to Rabbi Akiva. If you remember from our learning Rabbi Akiva, he's an interesting guy in that he has all of this great Torah learning. He came to Torah later in life. He only ever started learning Torah at the age of 40, and yet became one of the greatest Torah scholars in the history of all of the rabbis. And he is the one who names Shimon Bar Kosiba. He renames him Bar Kokhba. If anybody has heard of the Bar Kokhba revolt, Bar Kokhba means the son of a star in... Uh, Aramaic, and it's meant to it's meant to uh, anoint him in a messianic sort of way, Rabbi Akiva. So it's interesting in the space of this cosmic rupture that we see of of Acher uprooting, destroying the shoots. Rabbi Akiva is able to dwell in peace. He comes in peace and goes in peace. However, in the actual concrete lived historical experience, Rabbi Akiva does what he can to get these early 
rabbinic Jews to get them on board with the Bar Kokhba project. He gets them into a violent uprising that ultimately is responsible for destroying tens if not hundreds of thousands of those Jews that lived at that time. Um, so he, it's interesting that in the metaphysical, in this cosmic realm, he is in a place of peace, and yet in the world, his winds up being a, uh, a very fraught and very violent place. And if you remember the story with Moses, tying Moses seeing God tying the crowns on the letters and then seeing Rabbi Akiva martyred and dead in the marketplace, uh, Rabbi Akiva meets a horribly violent end. He meets a horrific end that Moses sees, if anybody remembers this story from early on. So Rabbi Akiva does dwell in a physical, in the, in the real world, in the physical world, Rabbi Akiva's space is a fraught one and is a violent one. And he's part of this... Uh, militant uprising, this national, this nationalist insurrection, and he meets a horrible end. But here, he is in this place of peace. Well, a fascinating contrast, I think. Yeah. yeah. He departed. I mean, did he too die? It just says departed. Perhaps it's another way to say. It's an interesting idea. I'm. My thought is that because this piece is explicit about about Azai dying, it says who he seats the mate. It says very clearly, this guy, he looked and died. Um, it would be, it's an, let me put it like this, the Talmud is vague enough that you can construct a, a, that as a reading, but it would be unusual for it to use the, the actual concrete word for death for Ben Azai, but not use it for Akiva, if Akiva died here. It's a great reading, and these drashot are how we learn about what this means, and we're going to see more drashing about this in just a moment, but um, it's a great question. Yeah, Audrey, and then... Okay, man. What's that? Why is it made to be such a puzzle? I'm not sure that it's intended to be a puzzle, as much as this is the rabbis and their worldview. This is sometimes called Talmud and Gemara, Mishnah, all of that is sometimes called oral Torah. What we're seeing here was originally a conversation. These were the rabbis arguing with one another, telling stories, debating, talking about law, them gathered around the table, hashing it all out. And it wasn't until later on that it started getting written down. And you see places where so-and-so said in the name of so-and-so, we're then getting later rabbis explaining what the earlier guys said. And then a third rabbi has to go and write it down eventually. And then potentially a fourth rabbi is the one who redacts it later on. So there are gaps. There's also layers of uh, story on top of it. But this is really their conversation, and I want to reinforce that a lot of people don't see this necessarily as the rabbis having a conversation with the people, with the folks in the congregation, with the Jews of the world. Know that this is a pretty elitist thing that's going on. That charge gets leveled at the rabbis with some regularity, that this is an elitist and elite conversation. They did not necessarily intend for other people to have access to this conversation. They might look at me and be upset that I am bringing this to people to actually learn um, if they were to come back and see this 2,000 years later. So, yeah, so it's interesting to look at to what extent is this meant for common consumption because that does get overturned in uh, medieval and early modern Ashkenazi Jewry where... Talmud study is not seen, it's not something you go to to answer a question, it's something you do for its own sake. It becomes virtuous in Ashkenazi European Jewry, which is why Talmud study is this iconic thing in the yeshiva to this day. So there it does get turned over into, you know, all of the Jews in the pews, so to speak. So who this is meant for and who is having this conversation, that's a great question to ask, and it's a complicated thing. Other questions about this piece? Because what we're going to get next, the rabbis, of course, 
You all took a look at that and said, destroyed the shoots? What does that mean? The rabbis are going to ask that same question. They're not content just to read that and say, oh, okay, so now he's a heretic. Fine, he messed up the garden. He messed up the gardening. So they want to know what happens. What does that mean? Exactly what happened there. So I would invite you to get back with your chavruta and read to the end of the page, the next two paragraphs. All right. Um, has everybody gotten a chance to make it through at least to the bottom of the page? Even if you your understanding of it is loose or tenuous, that's totally cool. We're going to unpack it all together. Yeah. Well, I just have a, a question. I was hearing something over there about the name of Metatron. Most of, from what I've read, which is not extensive, but mm-hmm. most of the angels that are named in the Torah are given the construction of something and then L, of God, like Gabriel and Michael mm-hmm. and... And all of that. And then Metatron has a completely different construction yep. for its name that is not found in any of the other angelic hosts or angels that are given names. So Metatron is probably a more recent angel. This Tron suffix there is probably Greek in some way or another. This, The way in which uh, Metatron's name is spelled in Hebrew, it's spelled with tets instead of tavs, which oftentimes indicates some kind of transliteration. Um, another, there are a few little linguistic things you can look at. Use of samech in words is sometimes, sometimes indicates the same thing. Like we get the name Esther, Queen Esther. Um, Esther is, we understand is probably from Persian. It probably is derived from Ishtar, this goddess, um, of ancient, uh, Eastern religion. Ishtar, exactly. And, uh, and it's spelled again with a samech. It sort of indicates to us that foreignness. Um, another interesting one, Mordechai, Marduk. Again, we get these interesting parallels with these Persian uh, divinity figures that come in, although that comes in a lot earlier probably than this. Um, so anyone who tries to tell you that all of this material is a closed, uh, see- hermetically sealed, canonized, block of stuff that's just an internal Jewish and Israelite conversation, well, I would take exception to that because clearly we see the influence and interaction with other cultures and other peoples, um, if not linguistically, then theologically and thematically. Is there a meaning to the name Metatron or is it because like Michael and Gabriel, they're what, voice of God or hand of God for some of them, but is there, does Metatron have a meaning or is it simply the name of this entity? So you could, in Talmud, it seems to just look like the name of this entity. If you were to try and drosh the Greek a little bit, which I'm hesitant to do based on my understanding of Greek, or lack thereof, um, think about the word meta. Metaphysical, the meta picture, yes. Or outside of. The grand, the bigger, yes, exactly. So um, So it is an angel separate from or after the other, because in... Like with the metaphysics, that was the book that came after physics. That was right. where it's referred to as metaphysics. So I want to say two things. If we're looking at this historically, you could probably draw a very interesting etymology and history based on that name. Um, for them, for these people who are experiencing this in this story, I want to caution us against reading that. They are viewing Metatron as an angel just like the rest. He's up there with Gabriel and Raphael and whoever else. Like, he's... um. They're not viewing Metatron as somehow being external to the project, even though they, in their Hebrew imagination, are probably hearing that glimmer of something that is not ancient, original, biblical Hebrew. So, yes. Yes to both of them. (laughs) Yes, and. He's just sitting down and writing his little book. 
How about this? Let's dive right in. Let's see what happens. Does that sound good? Well, let's and we'll unpack it when we get there. Even angels don't want to stand around and write their. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to start reading. Stop me if you have a specific question on a point. Acher destroyed the shoots. Of him it is said, "Do not allow your mouth to bring your flesh into guilt." That is Ecclesiastes. You remember how I said in the Tosefta version of this story, all four of them get verses in the earlier piece. So in the Tosefta version, it has that line up top. This I actually fast forwarded a few paragraphs down to where they start unpacking what destroy the shoots mean. In the original piece of this paragraph of the four who entered the garden, that verse is tacked up there along with Ben Zoma's verse and Ben Azai's verse and Akiva's verse. So that's where I said, here's the piece from Rabbi Akiva that we don't get in this story and from the earlier version. In the earlier version, we have the same verse, but it's just earlier. So what does... Yes? Is that to everybody? You mean that verse itself? Yeah. Well, it's said in reference to Acher, in a way that those other two verses are said specifically in reference to first Ben Azai and then Ben Zoma. Okay. That verse is said for... Uh, Acher. What does this refer to? Acher saw that permission was granted to Metatron to sit and write down the merits of Israel. He said, It's taught as a tradition that on high there is no sitting, and no emulation, no back, and no weariness. Perhaps, chas God forbid, there are two divinities. He looked up. So, is he saying that Metatron, is he saying Metatron might be a divinity since he has taken the freedom? To that take? seems to be the piece he's taking. He, he looks at Metatron's physical positioning and says, Whoa, angels aren't supposed to do that. Does that mean there are two gods? Mm-hmm. Now, let's take a step back from this story just to put us back in the ancient world, the ancient imagination. Who knows what was religiously going on in what is... Persia. Who can give us a word about that? Anyone? This is this is kind of an obscure question. What the religion that was going on east of them was? Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism. And it is a dualist religion, which means that it is a religion of binary. We are meant, probably. Let me put it like this: It would not be an unreasonable inference to think, oh. This is in some way in dialogue with the broader culture, with what was going on religiously around them. Um, for Acher to suddenly say two divinities, um, that's going to scream out in that imagination, oh, we're looking at the people around us. This is some kind of like um, Gnostic tradition or Zoroastrianism in particular. And it's interesting, you will see also other glimmers of Zoroastrianism in other texts. Without getting too grotesque on the matter, there is a piece about sky burial, which is a tradition in some of those Eastern uh, religious pieces like Zoroastrianism that comes up in the book of Ezekiel when they're talking about being exiled to Babylonia and to further east. Um, so that's an interesting resonance that we also get. So again, not hermetically sealed. Cultures interacting with one another, yes. So if we're having these glimpses into the Eastern religions, and you mentioned that these garden, that this garden, uh, the, the Pardes, may have been from that Eastern language and Eastern culture. I mean, there were the famous gardens of Babylon. I mean, they were the most uh, considered one of the wonders of the world since lost. But I mean, mm-hmm. can that be the garden? I mean, this this garden that was supposed to be 
something that was one of the most beautiful things in the world, the most magnificent things in the world. I'm not going to suggest yes or no simply because I have no idea about the dating of the, dating of the hanging place. gardens of okay. Babylonia. Um, it makes me want to go look it up, though. Um, that's a great question because I, I don't know. And it, yeah, it's a good question. And then the other thing I would suggest is if there is a tradition of these stunning, wondrous gardens, perhaps this could have been some kind of proto-garden that they had in mind. I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah, Robert. Uh, you, you mentioned that at the time there, there was a fair amount of back and forth, traveling back and forth between uh, Israel, Jerusalem, or whatever, and Babylonia by the rabbis. Mm-hmm. But so, I, I thought there was also quite a bit of tension mm-hmm. uh, in that regard. Those in Israel thinking that those who fled oh, to, I see what you're uh, saying. to Persia were wrong to have done so, and the right thing to do was to have stayed, etc. Great question. So that was not the tension I thought you were going with, but that's cool. Okay. Um, no, that's totally cool. It's a great question. What's the what tension I, that I missed now? Uh, well, I was wondering if you were referring to tensions between different great powers that existed at that time and the sort of occupying powers on the ground in these different oh, places. The tension between those communities, the yes. Jewish communities. So at this time in history, it seems that those communities have a good relationship. The tension you're referring to, we get much more during the return, which is when, this is in the Hebrew Bible now, so we're going back, oh, about 500-some uh, years-ish uh, in the Hebrew Bible, 500 BCE, before the Common Era, uh, when the first temple was destroyed in 586. It was destroyed by... Babylonians. The Persians then conquer the Babylonians and they let the Jews return to build the second temple. King Cyrus is the famous one. And in fact, I think it's uh, Divrei Yamim Chronicles somewhere, they refer to King Cyrus as a Mashiach, as a Messiah for his allowing, redeeming the Jews to the land of Israel. And at that time there does seem to be yeah, tension. Right. It was that, it, that was, yes. That was Exactly, between the Jews that returned That's to... That's four or five hundred years earlier. Exactly. Um, he gave the Jews a choice. Yeah, he, he didn't said, send them all back. You can stay here or That's right. can go back to Israel, I don't care. That's right. And we get in Ezra and Nehemiah, the books of the Bible, the sort of late books, we get the different lists and names of Jews and groups that went back to the land of Israel to be part of this temple enterprise the second time around. Those communities did have a little bit more tension about who was choosing to return and who was staying in exile in Babylonia. These communities don't seem to have that tension. They seem to go back and forth. They will say, oh, we have a tradition elsewhere, and we're going to see that in this story, actually, at the end of all of this. Um, We'll see that uh, interplay between the two, but they don't seem to have the tension that's earlier. But a good question, because that does exist in our Hebrew Bible. I just want to say that I'm kind of tripping a little bit Um, with the Don McLean song, By the Waters of Babylon, We Lay Down and Wept and all that. So that's Lamentations. That's, is that Lamentations? Yeah, that's... And and then I thought about this beginning thing of Mayan Mayan. It's kind of going back. But mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about water. So what, for whatever that's worth, um, it, it's it's amazing actually how these little conversations are bringing up you know, the gardens and... Babylon and everything over and over again. And with water, let's return for just a moment to Elazar ben Arach, 
the Ma'ayan Mitgaber, the ever-flowing spring, and that he chased the waters all the way to the point of losing himself, that we do get waters somehow attached to mysticism and this spirituality and these extreme kind of uh, experiences as we saw in the work of the chariot, the Maaseh Merkava. He is this figure that's all about water. He, in all of his imagery, all of his stories, all of that, we keep coming back to water with him. So the fact that it says, when you see stone, don't say water, there's a lot you could connect there. Um, as I was learning with my rabbi Sager earlier today, we were talking about, um, you know, the more of these stories you read, the more they kind of hyperlink to one another. If you think about it in terms of like Wikipedia pages, the more of these you learn, the more suddenly you see a word like water there, you could click on it and suddenly it takes you to Elazar ben Arach. The whole thing begins building its own semantic network of stories, of inferences, um, of connections between all of these different rabbis and the broader rabbinic project. So that's sort of what we're doing here, one step at a time. Um, but you're right to connect those dots. That's absolutely the right thing to do in reading this. I want to continue here because we've got plenty to go through. Um, at this, they led Metatron forth and punished him with 60 fiery lashes, saying to him, Why did you not rise before Elisha when you saw him? Who's the they? Probably some other group of the angelic host. Um, it's probably, it would be awfully uh, bold to assert that these sages are somehow have the reshoot the authority to take Metatron out behind the, the shed and give him a beating. So this is probably some other angelic group that is the they. Um, but this is a great line. I like this. You idiot. Why didn't you get up so he didn't see you? Because if he hadn't seen you, then he wouldn't have thought there are two gods. Why didn't you just stand up when he was coming? Which to me is really funny. You really hear like the human voice in this. It's not even that, this is the, what was interesting to me actually learning this earlier with um, Rabbi Sager was, Metatron is given permission to sit down. Somehow there is some kind of divine permission that he receives. Metatron didn't just do this of his own initiative. And he doesn't get punished for, being, for sitting down. He gets punished for letting Alicia see him sitting down. <laughs> that he got caught. He doesn't get punished for doing it. This is the funny thing to me. Yeah, go ahead. So in what my my other question is in what state are Metatron and Acher existing that they interact in such a way <laughs> that Acher what, he's hiking in the mountains and walks around a corner and there's Metatron sitting this this massive angel <laughs> writing down the merits of Israel. You know, you'd imagine this would be a, a something done in heaven where you know Metatron doesn't need to be physically looking at mm -hmm. how do you look at an entire nation unless you're on some incredibly high elevation where does Ahir just walk around the corner and bump into him so you remember in uh, in that story about Rabbi Eliezer ben Hyrkanos and the snake oven and whatnot at the end of it when they go to hear what God's response is that gets reported by um, by Elijah Elijah the prophet, one of the other rabbis, Rabbi Natan, asks him, Hey, Elijah, what did God have to say about that? <laughs> um, another example, in the Akiva stories, Moshe gets mystically whisked off of Mount Sinai, Har Sinai, to suddenly appear you know, through space and time in the back of Rabbi Akiva's Beit Midrash, in the back of Rabbi Akiva's <laughs> classroom. Clearly the lines of space and time and the different planes of existence and heaven the rabbis seem to be able to stride between these. That's something that seems to be common to these stories, is that they can go ask Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, about this stuff. Or Elijah the prophet just appears in some kind of thing, and they may not even know it's Elijah the prophet. 
Um, here, the Acher, Alicia Benavuya, is off doing whatever he does, off in his own experience. Perhaps, I'm going to suggest a reading here, and y'all can feel free to disagree with me. If we are looking at this garden story, if he is going and looking at this pure stone, this, this polished marble that is pure, and it is reflecting some kind of experience back, perhaps when he goes into that experience, what he's seeing is Metatron sitting and writing. Perhaps what is refracted, refracted, reflected back to him, both of those things through that vision, through that reflection, perhaps what comes back to him, whether it's his own reflection, great reading, or it's some other kind of experience in the Pardes, the traditional reading, what somehow comes back to him is he sees Metatron sitting and writing the merits of Israel. So, so that experience is when he has this thought of the two divinities, which could be the source of him lashing out and uh, destroying the shoots. Yep. So, or him asserting the divinity that there are two divinities. Is the destruction of the shoots? That could be too. Yeah. But he did not glance. But he did not glance. He did not glance. That's right. It doesn't say that he glanced. He did not glance. So you can make that argument that no, this experience with Metatron was a different experience. This didn't happen in the Pardes. I'm, I'll tell you what, maybe it wasn't through glancing. Maybe he was just walking around in the garden and saw this. I'm not sure exactly what it is. I think that in the, whatever happened, happened in the Pardes. I think that his destruction of the shoots is either in response to seeing two divinities or that somehow experiencing and expressing that there are two gods is an act of destroying the shoots. His asserting that in the world constitutes destroying the garden in that way. I'm going to, that's the reading I would suggest. And there's, it's ambiguous enough that I would invite you to argue with it. Argument is the backbone of the rabbinic enterprise in that way. But I'm going to stand with that reading for the moment. Yeah, Robert. The word shoots. Okay. I'm not, we keep focusing on, marble and stone and, mm-hmm. and it, be careful it's not water but it looks sort of like water but if we're in a garden and there's water uh, what goes on is that something something is going to be grown something new is going to be created out of what? Shoot, shoots are the the uh, the little the, the, sprouting the, bits the, the, the beginning of the creation of what comes out of the garden mm-hmm comes from the shoots. So is this a metaphor for these, some of these ideas that the rabbis are kicking around? Uh, it's a great reading. And what he does is he just comes in and wreaks havoc on... So that's sort of the understanding, is that whatever he brings into the world is capable of uprooting the rabbinic project, obliterating it in its little buds, its little flowerings, that are going on and that we're seeing in this text, the very beginnings of it and the very foundations of it beginning to flower in the world, that he's the figure that goes and destroys it. He's the one who's going to go tear it to pieces. That's what we're seeing in this text. I think you're absolutely right. I think that is the reading and we're meant to experience it that way. Um, Right on. I want to continue in this. We're going to see more. We're going to go into greater detail in an interesting piece with this. Uh, Okay. Permission was then given to him to strike out the merits of Acher. Him, it's a good question. Again, the Talmud plays fast and loose with its pronouns, as we have seen time and time again. 
You could uh, read that as being Metatron, actually. Metatron gets to retaliate against what? That's what I thought it was. He's writing down the merits of Israel, and oh, okay, <laughs> take care of him. Exactly. Scratch him from the list. What, what, what other possibility would there be? Any other, anyone else have a different reading of it? Then we'll go with that one for now. I, I agree with you. I think that's it, but I've heard other interpretations of it. I, that's sort of the one that I would go with, though. A bot coal went forth and said, Return, you backsliding children, except Acher. A bot coal, as you may remember from the story with Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkonos, means the daughter of a voice. It is the Talmud's shorthand for a heavenly voice coming down. We get the bot coal again with this rabbi between, uh, with this argument between Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkonos and the rest of the sages when they're arguing about the snake oven. If you remember that, a bot coal comes down and takes part in the uh, argument. So, the bot coal comes forth and says, Return, you backsliding children, except Acher. This is, again, this backsliding children piece is from Jeremiah, except Acher. Acher replied, Since I have been driven forth from the next world, let me go forth and enjoy this world. So Acher went forth into evil ways. He found a prostitute and propositioned her. She said to him, Aren't you Elisha ben Avuya? But when he tore a radish out of its bed on Shabbat and gave it to her, she said, It's another person. So a couple of notes on this. Being driven, have, since I've been driven forth from the next world, this is an explicit reference. To, well, there, he's referencing Olam Haba, the world to come. He understands that whatever has happened to him has cut him out of Olam Haba, the rabbinic formulation of heaven, the rabbinic formulation of where you go when you die. Whatever has happened with him, he is excised from any kind of afterlife. And he says, fine, if I am not going to participate in the, ne- in the next world, I'm going to go do what I will in this one. And he went forth into evil courses, evil ways. Sort of a vague uh, piece here. Um, this piece, yeah. The beginning garden wasn't afterlife. No, this is not Gan Eden. Again, this is uh, yeah, but, yeah, okay. we're not meant to see Pardes. It doesn't seem like, at least, as Olam Haba. Good catch. Good at question. It's just that the other two happened to one died there, and one hurt, and the other left. The other two left. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting question of whether he was angry. Because we'll see him get angry. But here he seems to simply be stating what is fact and what he is present with. We'll see him get angry though soon. Yeah. So my question is the backsliding children. Is this referring to the the, the angelic host and Metatron who are having this sort of Squabble because the only characters present at this point mm-hmm. are the angel or Metatron, the they who whip Metatron, which we're assuming are an angelic host, and O'Hare who's specifically excluded from this concept of squabbling children. Great question. So is this God chastising his angels for their behavior? Or? Probably not. This piece in Jeremiah is exhorting the people to repent. This is Jeremiah the prophet shouting at the people, you have all done all of these terrible things, repent. So this is probably talking about the Israelites. So this is saying here, the implication being that everyone can repent, okay. except Acher. Okay, so it's not, a, it's, not, it's not referring to the events that are actively going on, it's referring to Israel's ability to repent in general. And that what has happened with Acher has placed him outside of that ability. Yeah. Acher cannot do tshuva. Acher cannot 
uh, do repentance in that way. He cannot return so when we, from what has happened. Holidays when we would be recounting our sins to absolve ourselves and our, from our promises, he would be not allowed to absolve. The Bat Kol has come down and said, "You don't get to be part of that. You're not in the book of life, in the book of remembrance. You're you are excised from that. That's right." The Batkol has come down and declared it using the line from Jeremiah. That this whole repentance project we have here going on over here, all of you in shul, you don't get to do that. That doesn't work for you. That mechanism that the rest of the people have, that doesn't work for you. You are beyond that. Yes? I have a question going back. Why Rabbi Akiva departed in peace? That's a good question, and that gets unpacked at great length in another piece. I'll tell you what, let's, let's unpack that another time, because that, that goes off in a broad direction, sort of like how it says Acher destroyed the shoots. What happens with each of these characters, except Ben Azai actually, Ben Zoma, there's a whole long piece about him and him being stricken and him losing his mind and whatnot that I skipped. I jumped over to the Acher piece, and what comes after this is Rabbi Akiva departing in peace and what that means, and that's a long set of conversations. Um, because even this, I had to cut back on all of the Acher conversations that come afterward to try and streamline this down so we could get through it. So I want to go ahead and put a bookmark in that conversation for the moment, but it's a good question. Um, so this piece, I, the way it ends is so remarkable. Aren't you Alicia Benavuya? And what he does in response is uproots, tears up this radish growing up with this little, you know, flowering sprout out of the ground, he uproots it for the radish on Shabbat, which is prohibited. It's one of the categories of malachot, prohibited work on Shabbat. So he doesn't even say anything. He just shows, watch, here, I break Shabbat. Look at me. That's what he does. And she says, oh, this is acher. This is another person. This is the other, which is where that word acher comes in. She literally says her response is, oh, this is acher. Yeah. Yes, that footnote I have at the end, um, this another person, this other, literally what she says is, oh, this is Acher. I don't know if this is relevant, but uh, the only examples I know of where people get new names, usually God does it, uh, you know, several times in the Torah. Is this common? Uh, I mean, it really just happens a lot, and it's not odd that it's not God giving somebody a new name. That's not too strange. Um, Again, to return to uh, Rabbi Akiva renaming um, Shimon ben Kosiba to Bar Kochva. He gets renamed as part of his messianic, militaristic uh, figure. So it happens, is what I'll say. Um, So here we have his apostasy laid out that it is this cosmic thing, and then he is named by this simple act of um, uprooting something. Again, an amazing parallel to uprooting, to destroying the shoots, exactly. We see him physically do that on Shabbat to demonstrate that, no, he is in fact not Elisha Benavuya, he is Acher, he's someone else. And the implication is that the prostitute is actually the first person to give him that name? Uh, yeah. That being the implication, we see them putting the name in. They're retroactively putting in the name Acher for a lot of this piece because they know that he's the Acher, but they're saying, okay, where does Acher come from? This seems to be their explanation for why he's called that. Yeah. So the, the society that that, uh, he, that Acher would have been living in at this time, Yeah. would it have been like 
predominantly Hebrew with some integration of other peoples in there? Would it have been like, where he was living, would everyone have been Jewish and just have known this, or would it have been slightly more integrated? It would have been more integrated. Okay, because it was already that point where it was not necessarily majority, but there was a seriously significant Jewish population, but there were other people who had filtered in from trade routes. Put it like this. If you see an Arab or Palestinian Christian in Jerusalem, it's not an unusual thing to have different populations and such. And if he sees someone in a black hat with the strimal and the payas hanging down, he probably knows that guy's not going to drive on Shabbat. There's a certain degree of coexistence and knowing the customs of other folks and and being in the same place together. So the the prostitute would know that this yanking of the thing is is a symbol of him not not considering himself to be... Not being the great sage... Alicia Benavuya. Okay. Yeah, and go ahead. Well, so um, just coincidentally, I finished As a Driven Leaf this week. So <laughs> I, can't, I can't get that story out of my mind, but I don't know the real um, uh, the stories that these come from. And so, are there are there other stories where Alicia Benavuya is Alicia Benavuya and not a fair? I mean. Are, are there are there some before stories before he was out there? Not much. Much more of it is after the fact and talking about who he is afterward and what he does and what he says. There is some, but not much. I mean, As a Driven Leaf, it's a wonderful book, and I would recommend it to each and every one of you here if you want to read some modern midrash on who is Alicia Benavuya. Um, a whole book about Rabbi, about Alicia Benavuya and Rabbi Mayer. Um at this point, I would love us to get to our big dramatic conclusion. Turn the page. We're going to read the next three paragraphs in Chavruta. Stop at the line, and we'll read that last little line together. Um, those next three paragraphs, what I'll tell you right now, move through the second paragraph quickly. Don't read it as closely as the first or the last. It's sort of, if you hear a joke that has like, it's sort of setting up the punchline by repeating something, that's what you're seeing in that second paragraph there. I didn't want to excise it entirely, but um, that's the nature, the spirit in which I would like you to read it. So, read through these three paragraphs here, and we'll see a totally different version of Acher. Has everybody gotten the chance to read through this at least once, just to get to the bottom of the paragraphs? Okay, cool. Did you all as well? And it's okay if this seems convoluted. We're going to unpack it together and do a closer reading together. I just want to move us along because we have a little bit left to go. Um, our rabbis taught. Once Acher was riding on a horse on Shabbat and Reb Meir was walking behind him to learn Torah from him. Said Acher to him, Meir, turn back, for I have already measured by the paces of my horse that this is the end of the Shabbat travel limit. As I put in the note here, uh, the limit that they have for travel on Shabbat, you're not allowed to travel on Shabbat traditionally. Um, and the rabbis say in tractate Shabbat that uh, that limit is 2,000 cubits from a person's abode or where it is that they're observing Shabbat. So he's saying this is the end of the limit. This is the end of the line. You can't go any further. Mary replied, you go back too. Acher answered, I have already heard from behind the veil. Return, you backsliding children, except Acher. Yeah. 
is riding a horse allowed on the Shabbat? So that would have been a piece of travel again. Like okay. he's clearly setting out to so violate the Shabbat so limit. So he's already violating it just by being on a horse. Even if you took a horse to go next door, that would be a violation of the... I'm pretty sure what would... It, I'm thinking about what halachot and what malachot would go into that. Um, I'll put it like this. I'm not positive, 100% positive, that simply mounting a horse, but even tying up the saddle and, like, saddling it, that would be violation of the malachot around tying and those kinds of things. So what would just go into it would be a violation of it, forgetting, putting aside the intent that why on earth would you need to get on a horse if you... If, you're going if you can't travel, yeah. If you can't go beyond a you know two thousand cubits, what do you need you have for a horse? Um, about yeah, forearm or so. So it's, is that about a mile? Probably less than a mile, yeah. Um, yes. I'm going to ask you a question. Yes. By the Orthodox. Yes. Are we Or what? Are we after? That's an interesting question. What, what, say, repeat the question. Are we acher if we are, are we to folks who are orthodox? And I think, first of all, orthodoxy is such a big, big category that I I don't think it's possible to answer for all of orthodox because you have everything from modern orthodox and open orthodox, who I call my colleagues when I was at Hillel, to various streams of Haredim and black hats and very extreme sorts of... Uh, Jews, so I can't answer for all of them. I think there are folks that might not call all of us here in participating with this acher. They might not call them apostates. They might call the behavior apostasy or heresy of breaking various tractates of Shabbat and whatnot. But again, it would be what is the specific behavior that you would call heresy? And so then the question would be, what uh, is the law and how do you keep it and how do you interpret it? Um, this idea that you don't do work on Shabbat, that gets unpacked into the Talmud to be all of the different halachot that we have today. So even that's an act of interpretation. So I'm not going to answer that question because of the complexity and because of the gray areas and because there are a lot of people, Jews from other more observant backgrounds that might not agree in our with our particular observance of a holiday, of Shabbat, of this or of that but would see sufficient commonality with us as being part of Am Yisrael that they would not want to call us um, Acher or not want to say that we are uh, heretics or apostates. There are plenty of people with whom I can disagree and with whom we can still exist in Am Yisrael together in the same way that the rabbis have a great many disagreements that they disagree between Bavel, uh, Babylonia, and Jerusalem. There are a great many disagreements that they can have without excommunicating one another. The whole Talmud, the reason it's so long is it keeps all the dissenting opinions in there, even the ones that they disagree with. Those voices are still part of it. And that disagreement is the place from which we draw the richness of the Talmud. So that's a few words on that, more than a few. Um, let's see. Rabbi Meir prevailed upon him and took him to a schoolhouse. Acher said to a child, recite for me your daily verse. The child answered, there is no peace, says God, unto the wicked. Isaiah 48:22. He then took him to another synagogue. Acher said to a child, recite to me your daily verse. He answered, for though you wash with nitrate, looked it up, potassium nitrate, who knows, and use much soap, your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. 
This is Jeremiah 2.22. You can't wash off the sin. He took him to yet another synagogue, and Acher said to a child, Recite for me your daily verse. He answered, And you, who are spoiled, what are you doing that you wear scarlet with ornaments of gold, that you wear makeup? In vain you make yourself fair. This is Jeremiah 4.30. Took him to yet another synagogue until he took him to 13 schools, all of them quoted in similar vein. Again, I wanted to put that piece in as it's sort of lining up what's going to happen, but this is sort of not the punchline, as it were. When he said to the last one, recite for me your verse, he answered, but unto the wicked, the rasha, God says, who are you to declare my statutes? This child was a stutterer, it said, so it sounded as though he answered, but to Elisha, God says, rather than to the Rasha, God says. Some say that Acher had a knife with him, and he cut this child up and sent him to, into the 13 schools. Some say that Acher said, had I had a knife in my hand, I would have cut him for this. So this is the Acher. We see the full extreme of what a character this is. Um, this piece about cutting him and sending him to the 13 schools, that has a resonance with the book of Judges, actually, where they cut someone into pieces and send them to the 12 tribes of Israel. A woman, actually. It's some of the darkest material that we get in all of the Hebrew Bible in the book of Judges. But this idea of cutting someone in this way and sending them to all of the different places in that, uh, that evokes the book of Judges, which is the book of anarchy. It's the book of destruction. It is the book at the end of which we get the people crying out, can we please have some kind of monarchy, some kind of unity, some kind of order here. Um, this is the book that precedes the story of the coronation of the first Israelite king, King Saul. And then we get King David and King Solomon. It's in the wake of all of that violence and all of that destruction of the book of Judges that we get the great kings of Israel and Judea. Questions? Yeah. Well, I, I was struck by the sort of dichotomy of personality in um, Acher, mm -hmm. because in the beginning of this, the first paragraph, he's almost flippant about breaking the laws and, and showing his wickedness. I mean, there he is getting on his horse to go travel on the, the Sabbath, specifically because it's Shabbat and he can go travel. I mean, he's, outside. he's been told that he's, you know, uh, outside of, uh, that he's not going to be able to repent. So what does he care anymore? But then when he's when someone else calls him wicked, he snaps. So it's okay for him to think of himself as beyond redemption and wicked. But to be confronted with this makes him very angry about it. It's an interesting thing that all of these verses up until the last one all say the wicked, the evildoer, the wrongdoer. All of this, it's all vague until the last one where this child misspeaks and he hears his own name instead of Rasha. He hears Alicia. And it's up until then, he basically goes from one to the other, to the next, to the next, on and on and on, so forth, hearing all of this stuff, condemning the wrongdoer, until he hears his own name. Well, but there, there are two things that happen that struck me. Yeah. Last one. one is that, that he hears his own name. The second one is, the first 12 are sort of vague, you're a wicked guy, you're this, that, you know, or somebody is. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the last one has to do with messing with the statutes. Mm-hmm. And Very I thought, good. I thought that's what got to him. When he was teaching Torah in the beginning, even after he's become a hair, after he's become his apostate, there are there's still a, a rabbi mm -hmm. who is trying to learn Torah from this outlaw. Yep. 
Reb Meir is still learning from him. <coughs> Let's go ahead and read this very last piece. We'll read it all together. I don't think we need to do this in Chavrut. It's a very short piece. Um, I'm skipping to the end of a big chunk all about Reb Meir and this other debate and whatnot. We're still, this is all in Tractate Chagiga, by the way. This is actually, this story takes place just after the one of Elazar ben Arach reciting the Maase Merkava, that mystical stuff and all of the angels and the trees come down and all of that. This story takes place right after that. The Arba'a Shenich Nasu Pardes, the four that enter into Pardes. Continuing down to the bottom, this is about toward the end of them talking about Acher in this piece. So I'm fast forwarding more. But how did Reb Meir learn Torah at the mouth of Acher? When Rab Dimi came to Babylonia, he said, In the West, they say, Reb Meir ate the date and threw the seed away. There's another piece right underneath that where it talks about, it says the same thing. He says, he ate the pomegranate and threw the peel away. The klipah, this, this, that inedible exterior. So they say twice here that somehow Reb Meir has this unique position where he's able to learn from Acher. He's able to take in the pieces that are worth taking in, take in the Torah, take in what's beautiful, take in what's meaningful, and cast out the bad stuff, cast out what's dangerous, cast out what's inedible. That Reb Meir seems to have a gift in this way um, that is unique amongst all of these other rabbis. This is the end of Reb we see Reb Meir in other places, actually. Um, and we see very interesting stuff with Reb Meir's wife, actually, too. Um, one of the few female characters in Gemara is Reb married to Reb Meir. So we may revisit him, actually, once this class starts back up again. He would be an interesting one to revisit. Him. It's a good thing to think about. What's remarkable about this, the rabbis love Acher. Don't get me wrong, they also despise him. They're also terrified by him and find him totally threatening. But they are so fixated on him. They won't stop talking about Acher. And they have all of these different traditions about Acher in the East and the West and how it is that this is okay. The Acher is something that's so important in their world. The Acher is this sage who is smart and really smart and able to really access this stuff. But he's so smart that he's able to undermine it. This is an archetype we see in several places here of the sage who is so smart and so brilliant and so powerful, but from that power comes the ability to undermine this whole enterprise. This is a very precarious thing the rabbis are building, this entirely new civilizational civilization that they are building upon prayer and rabbis and synagogues and stories and all of this relationship to God and new forms of Jewish community. They see this this is a balance on a thread here. And the most brilliant amongst them, the most gifted, the most powerful voices are also the most dangerous. They are also the ones, the ones who have the true ability to innovate, to build, to construct, to remake the world as they know it, are the ones who have the greatest ability to destroy it, to cut the shoots, to stamp out these little buds and these little flowers of this new world that the rabbis are creating. They are enormously threatened by Acher. I won't even speak his name, and yet they just keep talking about him over and over and over again. They're not letting that one go. Um, and there's this interesting attachment to him. And in addition, not for nothing, Reb Meir never abandoned him. Up to the end we see this piece. There's another piece that's interesting about Acher and Reb Meir, and uh, that smoke emerges from their graves when both of them die. This idea that 
They are even linked in death. That Reb Mayer doesn't cut him loose, even after all of this. And, not for nothing, he is renamed the Acher. He is completely outside of the rabbinic project. Everybody can do tshuva. Everybody can do repentance except you. You can't come back. You are outside of all the mechanisms we have for returning to God. But Reb Mayer keeps learning Torah from him. And there is a later piece about, well, does God repeat the sayings of Reb Mayer? And maybe it's because Reb Mayer continued. Maybe God doesn't because Reb Mayer continued to learn from Acher. But, so there's some ambivalence about it again. But they don't ever strip his title of rabbi. They never excommunicate Reb Mayer. Reb Mayer continues to learn Torah from him. And he still is within the project. He's still within the whole enterprise. I want to tell you something that's amazing, actually. There's a line in Tractate Sanhedrin, another piece of Talmud that said, talks about a Zaken Mamre, a rebellious elder, somebody who is an elder within the community, a wise person who is rebellious. Um, and he has some big intellectual idea that stumps the court, stumps everybody. He takes his idea and appeals it to a higher and higher court. He continues taking it all the way up. This is in Sanhedrin, the 11th chapter. It's page 86b. If there's legal imagination to settle whatever this rebellious elder is doing, they settle it. Um, but eventually, this gets to the great Sanhedrin, the rabbinic high court of 70 sages, of the highest of the high, of the entire rabbinic project. If this rebellious elder, he's got something that's so brilliant, but they can't resolve it at the earlier levels, it eventually winds up before the great Sanhedrin. And what they say, they will author, they will write some kind of new precedent. They will author uh, some kind of decision. Now, here's the thing. If he disagrees with their decision, he has to accept it in terms of practice. What Tractate Sanhedrin says is, in his own practice and what he does, the Zakin Mamre, the rebellious elder, has to go by the ruling of the Sanhedrin. However, in his own school and with his own students, the Zakin Mamre can continue to teach his own innovation. He can't practice it, but he can continue to teach this thing that has been banned by the great Sanhedrin. What it says is, if he practices it, however, the punishment is death. It's capital punishment. You execute the Zakin Mamre if the guy somehow practices whatever his thing is that's beyond the legal imagination. But if he teaches it, you can continue teaching it and nothing happens to him. He's totally allowed to teach this innovation. This, in some ways, is this entire rabbinic tension. They have to innovate and they have to expand the limits of Judaism after the destruction of the temple. They have to, their world as they know it, this sacrificial system, all that they have come from has been destroyed utterly. Their project is to innovate, to create, to expand, and to push their boundaries. That is what is there for them. And yet it's possible to go too far. You can push the boundaries too far. You can cross the line. But they recognize inherent in the rabbinic project is this tension. This is what it's about. You have to innovate. You have to push. You always have to be striving for what is new and what's going to be on the frontier here. And that's a really dangerous enterprise. That is an incredibly dangerous enterprise, and that can get you into deep trouble very quickly. So here's what they say. This is the balancing act they have, is that you always have to be thinking, and you always have to be teaching. You always have to be pushing, and they recognize that it's scary, that this is a scary world out there, and you can lose your way. You can lose yourself. You can steer your community into something that is dangerous. Um, 
that this is fundamentally a dangerous and yet incredibly exciting and incredibly important enterprise. This story here with Acher, this represents the limit of what is outside of the rabbinic project. This represents the farthest edge, the farthest limit. This is their archetype for what is beyond. And that's the danger of the rabbinic project. That's the danger is that you have Acher. Acher was bound to happen sooner or later. If your project is fundamentally innovative, if it is fundamentally about recreating and rebuilding the world as you know it and making something new on the frontier, eventually you're going to have Acher. Eventually you're going to have this person. So here, what we saw today is the far limit, the far danger of the rabbinic project and the way in which they deal with it, the way in which they dwell with that, the way in which they see that danger and have to somehow reconcile this figure, this figure's teaching, and his connections with Reb Meir, um, with the fact that he's outside of their project. He has gone beyond the boundaries. So here, this uh, in this series we have learned, we've seen a lot about what are the boundaries of the rabbinic project, what are the boundaries of the rabbinic world. We've seen Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkonos and his debates, his excommunication. We've seen Rabbi Akiva and his uh, uprising he takes part in, his beautiful and brilliant Torah, and then the way in which it visits destruction in the wake of the Bar Kokhba revolt. We have seen uh, Eliezer ben Arach and his pieces, his innovations, um, his spirituality, his going off into the realms in these faraway places that are spiritual. And now we have seen now the far edges of it. We have seen the farthest that you can go and what truly sets you outside of the rabbinic project, what puts you off on evil ways. So I think in this way, what we've learned together over this past series is what constitutes the rabbinic project in many ways by looking at its boundaries and looking at its edges and looking at the way in which it pushes out into the world to create, to build its frontiers and that, hey, that's a dangerous thing and you can go too far. Um, that said, I want to give you all the kavanah that this is part of what Judaism is today, and this is how it is that we continue and we build on the legacy of the rabbinic project. Ours is not a Judaism of nostalgia, of simply trying to retain or remember or just stick to whatever were the ways of the ancestors. For us to truly be within the rabbinic project and to live this uh, into the world is to continue to innovate, to, to continue to build, to continue to not just think about what happened in the last century, in the last 50 years, the destructions, the joys, all of these things that have befallen the Jewish people in the 20th century, to be part of the rabbinic project and to live into the legacy of it is to try and imagine what's the next 50 years of Judaism going to look like? What's the next Jewish century going to look like? What will Judaism look like in 500 years? I promise you it'll be unrecognizable just as they wouldn't recognize what our Judaism looks like, just as Moses didn't recognize the Judaism of Rabbi Akiva that we saw but the rabbinic project is to look forward in that way and to continue, in spite of the dangers, in spite of what is challenging, to continue to innovate and push at the frontiers. So I want to say it's been wonderful learning with all of you over this, uh, I guess, semester, this series over this year. And I look forward to continuing the conversation with uh, all of you and all of you who are listening out there in podcast land. Um, I want to thank you all for being part of this learning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.